1: This episode begins a little differently, as I'd like to explain how I first heard about this case which would otherwise have been completely unknown to me The way it happened sounds like a spooky pub story cliché, but every word is true My wife and I visited the Peak District several years ago one cold week in February it was perhaps a somewhat foolish venture, as many of the things a pair of tourists might want to see were closed until spring. So we satisfied ourselves with some bird watching on the beautiful frost covered landscape of Derbyshire's Beely Moor. That morning we spotted Skylark, Meadow pipit, and a Grey Shrike and we were more than ready for a warm meal we found our way to the highwayman inn which was happily very much open It was here that we got talking to one of the locals who spotted our binoculars and asked us what birds we'd seen and if we'd travelled far He could tell by our accents that we were from down south so he took it upon himself to give us a potted history of the local area Almost as if by magic a few snowflakes began to drift down outside the window, and we edged closer to the roaring fire that the landlord had lit. The weather seemed to remind our new friend of something he hadn't thought of for many years, and he leaned forward and whispered conspiratorially, Did you ever hear about the Pottery Cottage murders? We shook our heads. Well, he said, rubbing his hands together and warming to his story.
0: It were a bitterly cold day in January, and the moors were covered with snow. In fact, it were a day very much like today.
1: What followed was a blood-curdling tale of the violent events of 1977, which became known as the Year of the Knife. Mad Billy Hughes was getting ready. Tomorrow was his chance to escape and he was damned if he was going to let anyone stop him. He had been remanded to Leicester Prison the month before in December 1976, charged with rape and grievous bodily harm. Christmas had come and gone and the new year was here and he sure as hell wasn't going to spend 1977 inside. Tomorrow, on Wednesday 12 January, he would be transported to Chesterfield Court to face charges. But he had no intention of arriving. As he lay in his cell going over the plan, he reflected on his life so far. He was 30 years old, the eldest of six children, and had started life in Lancashire, northwest England, although his father was an army corporal so they had travelled a lot and lived in Germany and Hong Kong. Things had been good back then, and he had got on well with his parents. But things started to go downhill when his dad got drunk and crashed an army vehicle. He'd been in poor health for a while, although Billy hadn't realised how bad, and when his father left the army, the household finances became very tight. They returned to the UK, and his dad worked as a painter and decorator, but there never seemed to be enough money to go around. Billy grew sick of looking after his five younger siblings while his parents worked and he left school at 15 to embark on a life of crime stealing radios and valuables from cars, breaking into houses and getting into fights. He soon ended up in Borstal, a detention facility for young men. They called it a reform school, but that was a joke, he thought to himself. It certainly hadn't reformed him. His reports always said he was a troublemaker, irresponsible, immature and unable to control himself. Billy didn't deny it. He enjoyed what he did and Bore still hadn't been so bad once he had decided to take advantage of the gym facilities to build up his strength. After his release in 1965, he had a few short-lived stints at earning an honest living as a metal polisher, a trainee decorator and a British Rail Apprentice. But even then, he couldn't stop stealing. It was around this time that his parents stopped having anything to do with him. He married Jean Nadin a few years later in 1972 and did time for assaulting her five-year-old daughter from a previous marriage, fracturing her ribs in a fit of rage. Jean gave birth to Billy's child in August of that year, a daughter called Nicola. Then one day he assaulted two police officers who had found drugs in the boot of his car and he was sentenced to three and a half years. He had only been released a year ago in early 1976 which he reminded himself is why it was so important that he made a successful escape. He wasn't going to sit at Her Majesty's pleasure any longer. He'd got a job working in the prison kitchens and stole a seven inch boning knife hiding it deep inside his mattress. The prison officers conducted a search for the missing blade but failed to find it. As Billy finished his walk down memory lane, he drifted off to sleep. The next morning at 8am he dressed in a blue pinstripe suit, floral shirt, tie and white silk waistcoat. He removed the hidden knife from his mattress, wrapped it up and put it in his underwear. A taxi had been ordered to transport him to court, accompanied by prison officers Donald Sprintle and Ken Simmons. Bloody stupid of them putting me in a taxi, Billy laughed to himself. They usually put violent offenders in more secure transport, so someone must have made a mistake, and it was going to make his life a lot easier. Sprintle and Simmons frisked Hughes before they left, but they didn't strip search him because the information they had been given said that Hughes was not violent. A man named David Reynolds drove the cab and Sprintle sat in the front passenger seat while Hughes was in the back. One hand cuffed to prison warder Simmons while the other hand remained free. As the taxi made its way slowly along the snow-covered icy roads Hughes chatted to the other men about fishing and cars as if he was just a normal person. Shortly after they left the local roads and joined the M1 motorway Hughes requested a toilet stop so they pulled up at a motorway service station Sprintle uncuffed his prisoner and waited outside the cubicle Inside Hughes deftly removed the knife from his underwear and placed it in his jacket pocket for easy access When he emerged he was handcuffed to Simmons again and they continued the journey Thirty minutes later, as they turned off onto the A617 slip road to Chesterfield, Hughes took his chance. With his free hand, he pulled the knife from his pocket and lunged forward, stabbing Sprintle in the neck, before turning to Simmons and slashing his neck and jaw. Hughes yelled at Reynolds to carry on driving and held a knife to Sprintle's neck, threatening to cut his throat if he didn't unlock the handcuffs. Somehow, he forced both bleeding prison officers into the back cuffing them to each other, then moving into the front passenger seat where he pushed the knife against Reynolds' side to force him to keep going. Hughes ordered Reynolds to come off the A617 and divert to a more rural route. At the bottom of Standage Hill, Hughes forced the driver and the two injured prison wardens out of the cab, leaving them bleeding at the side of the road. He jumped into the driver's seat and made his getaway, struggling to control the car up the hill and along the narrow B5057 as snow continued to fall. Visibility was poor and hardly any other drivers were braving the hazardous weather conditions. Hughes continued as quickly as he dared along the country road, dotted on either side with farm buildings and cattle, but he lost control of the vehicle as it skidded wildly on the icy surface. And crashed into a stone wall. Uninjured and fueled by adrenaline, Hughes ran from the car and continued his escape on foot heading in a northerly direction across Bealey Moor towards the village of Eastmoor on the edge of the Peak District National Park. In the meantime, Reynolds, Sprintle, and Simmons had been rescued by a passing recovery vehicle and taken to hospital, where all three were lucky to survive. Abandoned cab found on Darley Road 25057 Down the road from Red Lion Park Occupant appears to have fled on foot About 45 minutes later the crashed taxicab was found by a BEAT officer who radioed into headquarters and news of the armed and dangerous escapees started spreading fast Chief Inspector Peter House led the search with the help of sniffer dogs but the snow was falling more heavily now so any tracks had been covered with a fresh layer and the dogs were unable to pick up the scent. Police theorised that William Hughes had flagged down another car to hitchhike or hijack his way onto the A6 so they focused their efforts on the roads completely unaware that Mad Billy had lived up to his nickname and was mad, bad and reckless enough to strike out across the treacherous moorland on foot. The idea of him trudging through fields in sub-zero temperatures dressed for a court appearance seemed implausible, but Hughes was desperate not to go back to jail and desperation made him fearless. He trekked through the desolate moorlands, each step a monumental effort as his shoes sank into the wet snow. He was soaking wet and freezing cold, but he kept going. When he came to a stream he removed his socks and shoes, gritted his teeth and waded through the ice-cold water. The glacial wind penetrated his bones and whisked the falling snow around him encircling him in blustery spirals that he could barely see through. Anyone else might have given up or become disorientated, unable to break through the blizzard, but not Hughes. After a four-mile hike that had taken him just two hours, wearing nothing but a suit and smart shoes that were completely unsuitable for the terrain, he eventually reached his destination, Eastmore Village. One of the first buildings he spotted was a 19th-century stone cottage. Smoke rose from the chimney signalling welcome and warmth and a cast-iron sign on the stone wall near the white wooden entrance gate announced that the building's name was Pottery Cottage. Next to the sign hung a pair of lucky horseshoes. Sadly, they would not fulfil the role of luck and protection that the old superstition claimed. Hughes took stock of his surroundings. He crept up to an old wooden shed in the front garden and his eyes lit up when he saw an axe inside. He grabbed it, then tiptoed to the back of the cottage and peered through the door into the kitchen where an old woman was cooking. He found the door was unlocked so he burst inside and put his hand over the woman's mouth, commanding her not to scream. Her eyes widened as she took in the intruder's appearance with his bedraggled, soaking wet clothing and a look of hardened determination in his eyes. Hughes told her he had escaped from prison and warned her with a shake of the axe that everything would be okay if she followed his instructions. The woman was 68-year-old Amy Minton and she lived with her 72-year-old husband Arthur in an annex connected to the main house which was the home of her daughter and son-in-law Gillian and Richard Moran, who were 38 and 40. Gillian and Richard's adopted daughter, Sarah, completed the family. She had been adopted as a baby and had grown into an intelligent, happy 10-year-old. Arthur Minton heard voices and entered the kitchen to investigate, reacting with shock and anger when he saw the unkempt trespasser threatening Amy. Hughes carelessly pushed the old man to the floor and repeated his warning that nobody would be hurt as long as they didn't do anything stupid. Deciding to play along in the hope that he would keep his promise, Amy prepared a cup of tea for Hughes. As he drank it, he fired questions at the couple about how many people lived in the house and what time they would be back. They explained that Gillian and Richard were both at work and Sarah was at school. As he listened, Hugh helped himself to a pair of socks from Richard's chest of drawers to replace his own wet ones. When Gillian returned home at 3pm from her job as an accountancy secretary, she was just as shocked as her parents to find herself face to face with an escaped criminal. Sarah arrived 40 minutes later after being dropped off by the school bus. She was excited to tell her parents and grandparents that she had won the school sports prize that day but stopped short when she saw the strange wild-eyed man in their living room. Her mother tried to shield her from the truth telling her that the visitors car had broken down and he was waiting with them until the recovery vehicle arrived. They all sat and drank coffee making small talk about the weather in a surreal imitation of normality. Hughes showed them a photo of his own little girl Nicola, which reassured Jill that he was unlikely to hurt Sarah if he had a daughter of his own. What she didn't know was that Hughes had once held Nicola by the neck as a baby and threatened to drop her if his wife Jean didn't make his breakfast. Richard Moran returned home at 6pm from Brett Plastics where he worked as a sales director. Concerned that Richard was more likely than the others to put up a fight Hughes greeted him by holding a knife to his wife's throat and telling him to lay on the floor where he tied him up with plastic wire Sarah shouted Don't you dare hurt my mummy and daddy and Arthur berated Hughes for his actions but the family complied with his demands believing that the safest option was to offer no resistance they were peaceful, easy-going people who were more inclined to let things play out than put up a fight and fear of the consequences prevented them from taking action. What they didn't realise was that this was the start of 55 hours of sheer terror which would rapidly escalate from seemingly benign assurances of safety to utter brutality. The escaped prisoner then tied and gagged Arthur, Sarah, Amy and Gillian When Arthur tried to struggle, Hughes knocked him to the ground and dragged him into the lounge, leaving him in an armchair. He threw each of the others over his shoulder in turn in a fireman's lift, demonstrating his strength and left them each isolated in separate rooms. He then went back to Arthur, who had been the most vocal of them all. Hughes took out his knife and stabbed the 72-year-old repeatedly before covering his body with a coat, then went through the sliding door into the annex where he would left Sarah. He savagely attacked the little girl with the knife in a frenzy of anger that continued long after she was dead. He tied the door to the annex shut to delay the rest of the family discovering what he had done. He calmly cleaned his knife and took a shower, then made tea for Gillian, Amy and Richard. When he removed Gillian's gag, she asked him about the noise she had heard from downstairs which had sounded like a thud. To Hughes, lying was as easy as breathing and he said that her father had slid off the chair but he had helped him back into a sitting position. He then raped Gillian before returning downstairs to sit on the sofa opposite Arthur's corpse while he drank, smoked and watched the snow coming down outside. The blizzard was worsening and when he switched on the radio he heard the region was experiencing the heaviest snowfall in over 50 years, with many roads completely impassable. He was going to have to lie low here for a while longer. Braving the weather, police searched farm buildings and roadsides for the fugitive from justice organising traffic stops, searching vehicles and following up tips from locals, which all turned out to be dead ends. They believed Hughes had travelled westwards from where the taxi had crashed so they were looking in the wrong place. By the next day, Thursday 13th of January, they had visited over 200 buildings and had questioned Hughes's ex-wife Jean to see if she knew where he could be hiding. The head of Derbyshire Criminal Investigations Department gave an interview on live TV and asked the public to report any sightings of the violent convict, but warned them not to approach him.
0: Undoubtedly a a very violent man, Uh, in essence any man who will produce a knife uh, in the confined spaces of a motor car, stab one man in the back of the neck most severely uh, and then turn to the man sitting next to him uh, and in cold blood stabbed that man too undoubtedly is a very violent man, a man who's got to be caught very quickly. These are the two prison warders, of course. How uh, is their condition this morning? Uh, the condition this morning is improving. They, they're quite favourable today, very glad to say. Now, how can the public help you in the capture of this man? In essence, we're, we're asking the public uh, to report any sightings of Hughes whatsoever. Um, the one thing that we don't want the public to do is to have a go at this man. So far as we're concerned, he's still armed with this knife, um, the knife he used to attack the warders with, and the last thing that we want is for any member of the public uh, to be injured whilst having a go. You think it likely that if he was found by a member of the public or indeed the police, he will put up a fight? He's that sort of man? Well, I think in view of the present circumstances, undoubtedly this man could well have a go yes and stop some other person okay round two name something that's not boring
1: a laundry Ooh, a book club computer solitaire huh
0: ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Early that morning, Hughes untied Gillian and told her to make everyone a cup of tea. When she asked where her daughter was, he replied that she was still asleep. At 7.30am there was a knock on the door. Thoughts raced through Gillian's head. Could she warn someone that they were being held hostage? Hughes must have read her mind as he whispered that he would kill her family if she failed to act normally. It was the waste removal company who were due to empty the septic tank as the cottage wasn't connected to mains drains. She acted as though it was an ordinary day, signing the paperwork and saying goodbye with only a slight shake in her voice. She considered scribbling a note asking them to call the police, but she was terrified they would give it away by showing shock on their faces. If their captor noticed, he might punish her family for it. Had she known that her father and daughter were already dead, maybe her decision would have been different, but she was unaware of Hughes' cunning deception. As she shut the door and turned back into the house, Gillian asked again about Sarah. Hughes refused to let her see her daughter, but fabricated the details of a conversation between himself and the ten-year-old that morning, claiming that Sarah had asked him to put the radio on. He had agreed as long as she promised to stay quiet. This sounded realistic to Gillian, so she continued to believe that her daughter was alive. Hughes forced Gillian and Richard to call in sick to their workplaces and to contact Sarah's school to tell them she was too ill to attend. It seemed that none of them considered using the phone to call the police despite the surprising level of freedom that Gillian had been given as she was frequently untied and allowed to make refreshments in the kitchen. When the snowfall eased off, Hughes even let her leave the house unsupervised ordering her to drive to the local shop to buy cigarettes and a newspaper. As she left, he reminded her I've got your family here, Jill. Don't do anything stupid. Their lives are in your hands. Gillian was relieved when he told her he would be leaving soon. Was the family's ordeal nearing an end? While she was out, Hughes moved Arthur's body from the living room to the annex and secured the sliding door again. By this time the police were considering the possibility that Hughes had sought refuge in a local household and could be holding people against their will so they began conducting house to house checks but Pottery Cottage was just 500 yards too far north of their search radius. Later that night, Gillian made dinner and Hughes kept up the pretense that Sarah and Arthur were still alive by carrying plates of food into the annex. The snow had started up again and police were forced to call off the search due to the adverse conditions. Gillian felt brave enough to ask their captor why her daughter had not asked her for her comfort blanket or the small grey elephant she normally slept with every night. Hugh shrugged and didn't answer but agreed to take the items into the bedroom for her. When he returned he told Gillian that Sarah had been happy to have them but he still refused to let her see her daughter, becoming angry when she pressed the point. Once again he showed the worried mother the photo of Nicola and shamelessly assured her that he wouldn't hurt Sarah. The snow continued to fall and Hughes decided to stay at Pottery Cottage for a second night. The next morning on Friday 14th of January, Hughes told the surviving hostages that he was planning to leave later that day but he needed supplies for his escape. He ordered Richard and Gillian to drive into Chesterfield town to buy him a camping gas stove, food and cigarettes and suggested with fake fatherly care that they pick up a book for Sarah to read. Husband and wife were both terrified of doing anything to jeopardise their family's safety although Richard considered informing the police. Gillian convinced him not to, saying that she would never forgive him if he did. Hughes must have been an extraordinary judge of character to have felt safe enough to send Richard and Gillian out of the house on their own, certain in the knowledge that they wouldn't say anything out of fear for Sarah, Amy and Arthur. Hughes kept up his monstrous pretense that afternoon, taking meals once again to the room where the two bodies lay and had the effrontery to tell Gillian that Sarah was enjoying the book they had bought for her. In the evening, he began preparing to leave and packed his items into a bag. He tied up Richard and Amy and announced that he wanted Gillian to drive him away. He explained that he would then find another car, at which point Gillian would be allowed to drive her car home and untie the family so they could continue with their lives. Hugh slung his bag full of food and cigarettes over his shoulder and tightened his grip on the axe and knife. Just a couple of miles down the road, Hughes demanded that Gillian turn back, as he had forgotten to bring the road map. She drove the family Chrysler back into the cottage's gravel driveway and followed Hughes' instructions to turn the car around so it was pointing forwards in order to make a quick getaway. She then switched off the ignition to save fuel while Hughes went inside. We will never know why Hughes decided to turn the car around when he was so close to making his escape. Did he really forget the map? Was he concerned that Richard and Amy would manage to untie themselves and go to the police before he had enough of a head start? Or maybe he just had an unquenchable thirst for blood. When Hughes re-entered the cottage he noticed that Amy and Richard were trying to work loose their bindings. In a storm of anger, he stabbed them both over and over again before washing his hands and going back outside to the car. Gillian was unable to get it started so Hughes told her to ask the next door neighbours for help. It was around 8pm when she knocked on the door of Len and Joyce Newman. By now she was so terrified she could barely speak and it was obvious to the Newmans that something was badly wrong. Gillian finally took the risk of telling them what had happened and begged for their help, explaining that they had been tied up by the Moors man and that he was going to kill them all, adding Len, for God's sake, help us! The Newmans didn't have a phone so they assured Gillian they would get ready to drive to their next farm 500 yards away and ring the police from there. Relieved that someone from the outside now knew what was happening, Gillian got back into the Chrysler with Hughes, telling him the Newmans would be coming to help shortly. When they burst out of their garage at high speed moments later and accelerated down the road, Hughes knew immediately that Gillian had told them about him. At that moment, they looked up and saw Amy staggering out of the house. Gillian watched in horror as her mother fell to the ground, bleeding profusely. Hughes got out of the car and dragged Amy's body out of sight, then covered her with snow. Hughes dragged Gillian out of the car and told her they would have to make a run for it. Each time a car came along the road, he pulled her down into a ditch to keep out of sight. They made it to the home of local mechanic Ronald Frost at about 8.30pm. Jill knocked on his door and asked for his help to get the car started. They all climbed into Ronald's pickup truck and he drove them back down the road towards Pottery Cottage. Ron noticed that his neighbour and the man with her both looked dishevelled and when Gillian kept digging Ron in the ribs as if to tell him something he began to wonder if the man might be the escaped prisoner that had been all over the news. But when Hughes politely thanked him for helping to start the car and even offered him money for his trouble, Ron decided He must have been mistaken, as he didn't seem like the semi-feral criminal described by the police. When Ron arrived home and saw police cars gathering in response to Newman's phone call, he was shocked to realise that he really had been in the presence of Mad Billy Hughes just moments before. By now, Hughes had driven off in the Chrysler with Gillian in the passenger seat. Detectives broke down the door of Pottery Cottage and walked into a nightmare. The carpets were drenched in blood and there seemed to be a body in every room Richard Moran lay face down on the upstairs landing while his mother-in-law Amy lay outside, covered in snow Arthur Minton lay on his back in the annex, his arms tied behind him a large teddy bear in blue and white pyjamas sitting on his lifeless face as if to mock him in death Worst of all, they found the body of ten-year-old Sarah curled up in her grandparents bedroom the radio still playing. Each of them had died from multiple stab wounds to the throat and chest. Teams of police officers and marksmen were stationed at strategic points around the area. The Chrysler was soon reported to be moving at high speed along the A619 and multiple police vehicles pursued it through the dark streets of chapel on frith out of Derbyshire and into the neighbouring county of Cheshire. There's a car coming up behind us fast, Hughes growled furiously at Gillian. It's a bloody cop car. A police car tried to cut in front of the Chrysler to block its progress, causing Hughes to swerve and crash into a wall. Two officers tried to approach, but Hughes dragged Gillian from the car, brandishing the axe and knife, bellowing, Back off, coppers, or she gets it. The policemen had no choice but to surrender their car to him and the felon sped off in the commandeered Morris Marina with his hostage in the passenger seat. Just before 10pm, police pulled over a bus and urgently instructed the passengers to disembark. Startled and confused, they were ushered inside a nearby post office for safety. Police suspected that Hughes would soon be coming this way to pass through the arterial road in Raynau village. Once the bus was empty, police strategically parked it so that it acted as a roadblock. They held their breath as the minutes passed, then they heard an engine in the distance. The firearms officers moved into place and tightened their grip on their weapons. It was rare that the British police force had to call in their few specialist officers who were trained to fire guns. The sound of the car engine grew louder and suddenly the stolen police car appeared, bombing towards them with no sign of slowing. Hughes tried to swerve around the roadblock bus, but lost control. The tyres screeched as the car spun round and round, mounting a curb and smashing through a street sign before coming to a stop as it crunched into a stone wall. Police officers converged on the crash vehicle. Neither of the occupants appeared to be hurt, but Hughes held the axe over Gillian's head, shouting that he would kill her if they didn't provide him with an escape vehicle and let him leave town without pursuit. Chief Inspector Peter House led the negotiations and offered to take Gillian's place at Hughes's hostage if he let her go free. But the fugitive wasn't willing to talk. He shouted, I'm not going to prison ever again. I'll take all your bastards with me when I go before that happens. I'll kill her for sure if you don't get me another car. Inspector House agreed to provide a getaway car for Hughes realising it could be their only hope of securing Gillian's safety but when it arrived, Gillian was too petrified to move and shook her head in fear. She knew that her captor wanted to take her along as she was his only bargaining chip. House tried again to persuade Hughes to accept him as an alternative hostage, offering to drive the replacement vehicle while Hughes sat in the back with his knife and axe, but Hughes didn't trust him. After almost an hour of fruitless negotiations, Hughes lost his final shred of patience and screamed at Gillian. It's your fault. Chief Inspector House cajoled him. Just release her Billy. Hughes yelled in response. Right, your time's up. At the same moment as he swung the axe towards Gillian's head, House leapt through the rear window of the car and grabbed the weapon, wrestling it away from the terrified woman's face so that a potentially fatal blow was reduced to a minor gash on her forehead. Seconds later, Officer Frank Peld fired one shot through the rear passenger window, grazing Hughes's temple. Hughes was filled with fury and chopped Inspector House on the arm with the axe while Gillian huddled against the car door. Officer Alan Nichols squinted and aimed, knowing the danger of shooting into a confined space with three people moving around inside, but he had no choice. He pulled the trigger once, twice, three times. He was third time lucky as the final bullet entered Hughes' shoulder and passed through his aorta, killing him instantly. Gillian Moran was treated in hospital for her head wound and shock. When a police officer sat at her bedside and informed her about the events at the cottage, Gillian asked quietly, There's no one left then. He replied with emotion in his eyes, No love, no one. When she left hospital, she went to stay with friends at a hidden location where the press couldn't find her. Later, Gillian agreed to give one interview to a national newspaper, after which she never spoke to the media again. The chief inspector of the prison service published a 57-page report a couple of months later highlighting the failings that had contributed to Hughes' escape from prison, particularly the ineffectual search for the missing kitchen knife. Strip searches were recommended for all future prisoner transfers. William Hughes had the dubious honour of being the first person to be shot dead by Derbyshire Constabulary, which the court considered justifiable homicide. The coroner and the jury praised the actions of Chief Inspector House, who was later awarded the Queen's commendation for brave conduct for his actions to save Gillian Moran's life. Locals held a demonstration against the planned burial of Hughes in the Boythorpe Cemetery and held up signs which read, Holy ground, not the killers. Their protest was successful and the murderer's remains were secretly cremated at Chesterfield. The agony that Gillian suffered as the sole survivor, having lost her parents, her husband, and her daughter, is incomprehensible. She later married Richard's stepbrother, Jim Mulqueen, in December 1978, and their daughter Jane was born in June 1979. They gave Jane the middle name Sarah, in memory of the much-loved adopted daughter, whom she missed desperately. Pottery Cottage was put up for sale and was purchased for a low price in September 1978. The house's painful history didn't deter the new occupants, but they removed the sign from the front and gave it back its original 19th century name, North End Farm. Due to the building's age and historical significance, it was saved from the bulldozing that awaits many murder houses. A new garage has since been built at the front of the house and oak trees have been planted on each side of the driveway, offering extra privacy. The same picturesque fields lay behind the cottage, with peaceful views of the countryside beyond, betraying no sign of the horrors that took place there more than 45 years ago. We slowly returned to the present, noticing once again the roaring fire in the half of the Highwayman Inn and the snow still falling gently outside the window. We had been completely transported by the local man's story of the murders that had taken place so close to our holiday destination. The worst part was that it wasn't just a story. It was a horribly real event caused by the unbelievable cruelty of a man who would do anything to avoid jail. Why did he have to kill them? He could have just hidden out at the cottage and made his escape without adding murder to his list of crimes. But he chose to put a family through an unconscionable ordeal taking away everything that Gillian had ever cared about. It's an unsettling case, the sort that makes you check your doors and windows extra carefully at night. But this wasn't the only horrific incident to occur in the Peak District in 1977. When we returned home I researched the case in more detail and uncovered another murder that shocked the country which took place less than a month later and only 30 miles away which I will present in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prash's Murder Map. If you enjoyed it please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This case was taken from my true crime book Murder Casebook Volume 2. For news about my books and free true crime blog posts check out my website www.prashganandran.com details of which you will find in the show notes. I really appreciate your support and I'll see you again soon.